This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 165, and I'm interviewing Virginia Soul Smith, author of The Eating Instinct, about how food should be safe and comforting, first and foremost. Plus, we chat about how to feed kids intuitively. If you are a parent or caregiver, you definitely, definitely want to listen to this episode. You can find all the links and resources mentioned including a link to Virginia's book at summerinanin.com forward slash 165. First, I want to give a shout out to Dom's mom forever, who left this amazing review for the podcast. Finally, I get it. I've been working on recovery for a couple of years and you are helping me get it. It's not my fault. I can be more compassionate with myself and be angry with the way the media has made me feel less than. I signed up for your You on Fire program and I can't wait to work with you. You rock. Thank you so much. That's such a great review. And yes, I love it when things click for people and they realize it's not your fault. It is not a defect that you feel the way you do about yourself. So I'm so glad that that resonated and I'm really pumped to work with you too. And if you haven't left a review, you can do that by heading to iTunes, select rating and reviews and click to leave a review. I would be so grateful if you did that. It helps other people find the show and keeps it going on the air. And you can also subscribe. That helps as well by clicking subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any of the other ones that are out there. And if you haven't already done so, definitely grab the 10-Day Body Confidence Makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. This is the first episode I've recorded since the pandemic. Uh, really hit North America. And I hope you're all doing okay. All the ones that uh, were released while the pandemic was, well, the pandemic has been happening, were recorded prior to that. So I really hope that you're staying safe and that you're doing okay. I know it's been a tough time for some people. A lot of what's happening in terms of food scarcity and, you know, not having your everyday kind of busyness and coping mechanisms can really start to trigger diety behaviors as well as eating disorder behaviors. So just go really easy on yourself and seek out help if you need it. It's a good time to, you know, kind of deal with some of those emotions that you've maybe sw swept under the rug with productivity and busyness. But uh, yeah, I hope you're all doing okay. Maybe I'll do a podcast about my situation here, but to be totally honest with you, a lot hasn't changed because I'm an introvert that already works from home. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, other than the fact that I'm worried for the world and the people close to me in my life and everything like that. Anyways, this interview that you're going to hear today, uh, we recorded this back in, I want to say January or February. So it's been a few months uh, that it's been sitting in the vault ready to be released. Um, I had to put it on hold because I did the body image series, but now I'm excited to release it. Virginia Soulsmith is amazing. I love following her articles, reading all the pieces that she puts together, had a really great time reading her book. And I learn a lot from, from her advice and her podcast about how to, how to feed kids intuitively. And even if you don't have kids, uh, we, we spend a good chunk of this podcast talking just about what she learned in her book, the eating instinct about the intersect between our culture and guilt around food and body image and things like that. So today's guest is Virginia Soul Smith. She's the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, and she writes about food, body image, and feminism. She's also a contributing editor with Parents Magazine, a frequent contributor to New York Times Parenting, and co-host of the Comfort Food Podcast. I think you're really going to love this one. Enjoy. Hi, Virginia. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love you to start out by sharing a bit of your story and how you got interested in writing about food and and body image and the way that our culture perceives food. Like what got you into that? Sure. So, you know, in some ways, I think I've been writing and thinking about these issues for a lot longer than I realized. You know, I, I grew up in a smaller body. I didn't think a lot about my relationship with food personally. But certainly, you know, I was in the world of diet culture and all of these messages sort of surrounding me. And my first job out of college was as an editorial assistant at Seventeen Magazine, where my job was to read. This was like pre-social media. So we got emails every day from our readers. And I had to read like hundreds of emails every day from teenage girls. Basically, I would say the most, you know, other than like boy trouble, the most common thing we heard about was I don't like my body you know, I feel so bad about myself, like all of this sort of like body sadness, body sadness over and over. And I had this moment of, you know, sort of really marinating in all of their, their concerns and anxieties and seeing that and then realizing that as the magazine, what we would do is like a story on how to get your best bikini body or get in shape for prom or, you know, like snack smarter, like all these sorts of things that, you know, it was just such a clear disconnect to me. But at the time, I, you know, Obviously, I was early on in my career and trying to figure out, you know, who I was going to be as a writer and didn't really have any sense of like what the alternative was. So I spent the first 10 years of my career as a health journalist writing quite a lot about dieting, actually, and always dealing with that discomfort of what am I telling people? This doesn't feel like really good advice, but like, what's the alternative? I don't know. You know, I guess we'll just have to find a diet that's like somehow not bad for people's <laughs> mental yeah. being, you know, as if that exists. <laughs> but I just kind of carried along this path, feeling frustrated, um, some stuff with my own body starting to kind of get more complicated as I became an adult who doesn't live in such a smaller body and sort of coming to terms with that. But really, it didn't all come together for me until after I became a mom, which was in 2013, when my older daughter Violet was born. And this is where the story takes a little bit of a left turn. But basically what happened was Violet was born with a rare congenital heart defect. We didn't know about it until she was a month old when she became very, very ill and nearly died. And 
we're really grateful that we had excellent medical care and, you know, the doctors were able to save her life. But a consequence of the trauma she underwent as a little newborn being rushed into emergency surgery is that she completely shut down on eating. She had been breastfeeding in the first few weeks of her life and she couldn't do it at all anymore. She wouldn't take a bottle. She was just completely going to starve without a feeding tube to save her life. And it sent us on this odyssey of the next two years, trying to figure out how to make this little traumatized baby feel safe around food and how to bring her back to oral eating from the feeding tube. And the whole experience was so intense for so many reasons, but it pushed me so far outside of the mainstream paradigm around food and feeding and also motherhood. And, you know, there's a lot about motherhood and feeding that's tied up in how we feel about our bodies. And it's really this whole complicated tapestry of stuff that came up for me. And it was really when I was pushed all the way outside that I suddenly was like, wait a second, I've spent my whole life looking for this plan on how to eat. And I've, you know, as a journalist, I've spent all this time trying to report on like, what's the quote, best way to eat. But now literally nobody can tell me how to make eating safe for my baby. There is no plan. We are going to have to figure this out in some uncharted territory. And that's really, you know, it, it sounds sort of disconnected, but it made me start to question diet culture in a much bigger way because I realized so much of what was necessary for Violet's healing was to help her reconnect to her own instincts around food, to her feeling of hunger and fullness, and to feeling safe around food. And I realized, you know, that's something that almost all of us need on some level. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, first I'll just say, like, I, I love your book. I loved reading it. You're such a good writer. Like I was completely sucked in. I couldn't put it down. And oh, thank um, you. I didn't want it to end. I want to end it. I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I felt like you could go on and on. Anyways, I, the, but you know, we really go into detail about your, your daughter and what happened and the trauma around that. And yeah, like I just, I can't imagine going through something that stressful. I mean, just feeding a baby, in and of itself is so stressful. Like there's so much pressure. And then to have, you know, what you went through where, where she wouldn't eat, like, it's just, yeah, I just, I really commend you for, you know, getting through that. And I would love to know, uh, or I'd love for you to share just, you know, where, where Violet's at with food now, like, was she able to kind of tune into her instincts and become, feel safer? Yeah. 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 No, um, absolutely. It's so Violet is now six and a half and her favorite foods are pesto pasta, brownies, chocolate ice cream with rainbow sprinkles, blueberry. Oh no, wait, we're off blueberries this week, strawberries. And I forget what else, but as you can tell from that list, she is a successful oral eater um, who likes a lot of different flavors, definitely connects food with comfort now and definitely, you know, takes tremendous pleasure in the foods that she loves. She is, I would say, still a more cautious eater. You know, I don't like to compare my children, but, you know, I have a younger daughter who's more typically had a typical relationship with food. And so, you know, I can see that the experience left her a little more hesitant than maybe she, who knows, or maybe this was always in her. It's one of those things you'll never suss out, but, um, but she is fully capable and confident, takes great pleasure in food and knows what she likes and knows, you know, what she wants to do with it, which is, it's tremendously rewarding to see for sure. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, kudos to you because I feel like you did such a good job following your instincts on the journey from what it sounds like, just in terms of, you know, trusting that she could, she could trust herself and, um, and, and regain that ability to, to eat instinctively. So 
you know, I think that a lot of people would have a hard time doing that, not their fault. Like, you know, we've all just been conditioned to sort of believe that we need structure and rules and um, someone to teach us. And so good job on you for, for sticking with that through what was an incredibly difficult time. Well, and I have to say, I had really excellent help. I mean, I, this wasn't, I don't want people listening to this to think like, oh, I just need to like get in there and trust my instincts and it'll all be fine. Cause you know, when you're in drama, um, there's, you need a lot of support. And so, you know, I had help in terms of the therapist helping me with my trauma, you know, and then we also had a whole medical team working with Violet as well as a feeding team. And, you know, it took a village for sure. And, you know, fortunately, you know, it's a difficult situation and anyone who has even just a sort of garden variety, cautious or picky eater can definitely relate to this. Like there's so much information and pressure and people sort of telling you they kind of know the quote right way to go about it. It can be really difficult to suss out what's going to make sense for your kid. And I think, you know, in some ways ours was almost easier because it was so extreme because there was less like less competing narratives about what we should do, you know, and we did realize like, okay, we, you know, there's just wasn't a clear kind of path to follow. But, you know, we did find a lot of helpful resources. Um, and a couple I always shout out are Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility is definitely something I encourage folks to look into. That was kind of and continues to be the bedrock of how we feed our kids. And then there are certainly many feeding therapists who work particularly with children on feeding tubes that were super helpful to us. And understanding how to rebuild this trust and feeling of safety with food and just explore things at Violet's pace versus trying to really like push her to eat when she just wasn't ready. So yeah. 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 And I'll link to Ellen Satter's website because there's multiple books in the, in the show notes. And I do want to loop back to that a little bit later, but I just want to talk a little bit more about your book and like what in, I'm curious to know, like what inspired you to write it and to, you know, like interview so many people. So um, maybe you can just tell everyone a little bit about what it's about first. And, sure. Um, yeah. And like what inspired you to write it and what you learn from it. And I know those are three questions right there. So <laughs> <No> <laughs> you can loop back if you forgot what I asked you. <laughs> so the way the book is structured, it starts and it ends with our personal story. And, um, you know, Violet in many ways is just kind of a metaphor in the rest of the book, I always say, because, you know, that was the experience that made me realize I had a bigger story. I wanted to tell about food. And then it made me realize, you know, this whole whole concept of can we trust ourselves around food or do we need outside, you know, diet gurus, books, doctors, whatever to tell us what to do. Like that was really at the crux of what I was dealing with with her. And it felt like this kind of mirror, like almost funhouse mirror image of what I saw people dealing with, you know, across the board, especially women with food. And so what I decided to do, I initially wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine about teaching Violet to eat again and the kind of competing schools of thought in the pediatric feeding disorder world, which are, you know, do you try to reconnect them to their instincts or do you basically train them to eat for rewards? Like much like you'd like train a puppy to sit and give it a treat. Like, do you train a child to take a bite and get some kind of other reward so that they'll keep doing it? And these are the sort of the debate that goes on there. And that really, to me, felt like this parallel story with diet culture where it's like, can we eat intuitively or do we need someone to teach us how to do it? 
And so I wrote the piece for the Times Magazine that focused really just on that part of it. And then I started hearing from all of these people saying, like, you know, I really connected with her story because I don't feel safe around food. You know, I've been a picky eater my whole life and now I'm in my 40s and I only eat seven foods. Or, you know, I've struggled with my weight my whole life. I'm in a bigger body and I feel like I can't ever feel safe eating because people judge me, you know, for my choices and that kind of thing. And so that's when I was like, okay, this is actually bigger than just what's happening in pediatric feeding disorder treatment. This is bigger than my own relationship with food. And I just wanted to keep exploring this theme of what does it take to feel safe around food in a whole variety of different ways and started collecting stories from other people. And, you know, I probably interviewed over 50 people, not all of whom ended up in the book, but the book then is grouped in chapters exploring kind of different aspects of this. So there's a chapter on what it's like to eat if you are such a picky eater, you know, the official diagnosis is ARFID or avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, where people really only feel safe eating a very short list of foods. Like, what does that look like? What does it look like to eat when you have orthorexia and are so worried about whether your food is clean and healthy and that piece of things? Um, I explored what it's like to learn to eat again after gastric bypass surgery. What is it like to learn to eat when you grow up in a food insecure household? And how do you ever learn to trust your hunger if there's literally not enough food in the house? And so, you know, fulfilling your hunger isn't available to you. And just all these different ways that people's Basically, their relationship with food fell apart and how they tried to put it back together again and what that looked like. And over and over, you know, the themes were people feeling ashamed of their food choices, feeling like they couldn't trust themselves around food, and then sort of looking at what did they do to reclaim some of that space for themselves. So that's that's really how the book is structured. And in terms of what inspired me, I mean, again, it was the Violet situation and then this process of kind of hearing from other folks and realizing there was some as extreme and sort of strange as our experience was that it actually connected to these common themes. And now I think I forgot what your third question was. (laughs) I I probably think I have too, but I feel like you answered it in there because I think it was like, what are the, well, yeah, what are some of the things that you learned from it? Which, yeah, I mean, if there's anything else you want to add, feel free to do that. I think you know, some, a lot of what I learned, to be honest, was pretty sad. Like it was hard to do this recording and over and over again, have people kind of denigrate themselves or their bodies or their relationship with food to me, especially because I was sort of hearing it from so, in so many different and disparate environments, like someone very wealthy in this like marble kitchen telling me that she didn't feel good about how they ate as a family versus someone, you know, on food stamps and, feeling like she had to apologize because she didn't have like name brand water bottled off, like bottled water to offer me or something, you know? And so it was just this sort of like this theme of shame and sadness around food. But then there were also these stories of real triumph of people overcoming some pretty, pretty grueling circumstances. You know, one story that really inspired me and continues to inspire me is, um, Gina, who's a character I follow in the chapter on weight loss surgery, Gina, grew up in a larger body, you know, lived her whole life in a larger body and had really fought hard to come to terms with that. She'd embraced the health at every size movement, you know, really had worked hard to kind of say like, this is who I am. I'm going to get off the dieting cycle. I'm not going to try to change myself and had done that work. And then she was trying to get pregnant and no fertility clinic would treat her because they said, you need to lose weight first. So she ended up having weight loss surgery purely to access medical treatment, which is pretty heartbreaking and shows how deep the stigma around larger bodies goes in her culture. But she was like, you know, this is what I've got to do. This is what I'm going to do. And 
you know, following her journey through that and then seeing how she was able to keep intact her sense of intuitive eating during the recovery process, you know, that she was able to keep this respect for her body because she had done all that earlier work, even though she then had to kind of put herself through such a grueling ordeal. You know, it made me really angry at a culture that asked that of her, but the way she persevered through it is like hugely inspirational to me. So there's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of different things. And I think, you know, some people, it's funny, on Amazon, when I read the negative reviews of the books, people say, well, this book doesn't tell me how to eat. <laughs> yeah, and that, but that's what I loved about it. That's what was so refreshing and different. And it's like, that's no, I did. I do not tell you how to eat. I am not. A, it's not a diet book. It's not even a like, you should, you know, follow this sort of philosophy about food. I'm really just like, what I came away with feeling is like, if we can reconnect to our own eating instincts, and really, the biggest one is knowing that food should provide comfort, that food should be safe for us. If you can put that first, I think a lot of the other stuff starts to click into place, both for us and for how we feed our kids. Yeah. And that like this whole notion of the, of, like you said, safety and comfort and pleasure being just as important as, as nutrition and, and often more, more important. Like that's kind of paraphrasing one of your quotes that I had highlighted. And yeah, the other, the other thing that you said that, that like really stood out to me and it was just an interesting way to phrase it, but it's just how we've come to a point where not eating is safe and we're learning how to not eat all the time. And it's like, you know, if you, if you kind of, if you phrase dieting in that sense, like, I feel like most people would be like, whoa, like this is like, why? yeah. And it makes it, it kind of sheds light on just how, how disordered that is. And, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I loved reading it cause it was so different in that way. And it just like exploring all the stories and wondering what happens and what you learn from it. And, and it's just, it's really well written. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, uh, or maybe as you said to me uh, before we started recording or offline, it's available in paperback now, right? So it's, or it's coming out in paperback soon. Yeah. What, is it yes, out now? So it is out now in paperback. Um, yeah. Anywhere you get books and you can probably still get the hardcovers too, if you like hardcover better or Kindle or audiobook. <laughs> yeah. Great. Okay, cool. Whatever you like. Yeah. yeah the, the, no, it's awesome. So I want to shift gears though, because you are, are, um, you do write so much now about uh, feeding kids and um, helping parents kind of see how they can better feed their kids in a way that doesn't leave this kind of disordered legacy behind, I guess. And I'm curious to know just from all the like from all the writing that you've done, all the people that you've talked to, like it seems to me like feeding kids is so much more complicated now than it was when we were young or when we were kids, I think we were both kids of the eighties. So, um, like, what are your observations on what you see happening with the way that we approach feeding kids? I think it's hugely more complicated. And the reason is there's a lot more diet culture in how we feed kids these days. I actually just read about this. So I read a column for the New York times parenting section. Um, and I just did a piece on this because I am so troubled by it. You know, I literally get press releases on a semi-regular basis for things like paleo baby food or low carb kid snacks, you know, and this is like such Oh, it's so frustrating <laughs> for so many reasons. I mean, it sort of sounds obvious, I think, that babies don't need to be paleo. But for anyone who feels confused about that, like children need carbohydrates to grow. They're fundamental to their growing brains and their bodies. And so the fact that our, you know, carb and sugar phobia that adults deal with and the way diet culture talks about food right now is trickling down to our kids is hugely concerning because it's 
really bad nutrition for kids, for one thing. And it's also just giving them all the same messages about like that there are good foods and bad foods and good bodies and bad bodies. And, you know, your worth is attached to how you eat or your worth is attached to how your body looks. And these are really dangerous messages. And I think, you know, for a lot of us, like, I'm not saying the 80s was an idyllic time. There was plenty of diet culture in the 80s. And, you know, our generation was definitely impacted by it. But I think a lot of us who grew up in that would actually, you know, we're searching for something better. And instead, diet culture has gotten more complicated, more intensified. And I think a lot of the reason that it's so much in kid food is because our sort of definition for what it means to be a good mother has also intensified and gotten more rigid. And part of that is diet culture fueled. You know, we have this whole celebrity culture where we see actresses and influencers and people, you know, having their babies and then immediately bouncing back to their quote pre-baby body and then making their own baby food and then, you know, breastfeeding for a really long time. And, you know, making that a huge badge of honor. And that's not to sound anti-breastfeeding. I'm not at all. But, but, you know, we've, we've added this performative layer to it, to how we think it means to be a good mother. And so we really do feel this anxiety about like, what snacks am I pulling out on the playground? And, you know, what will the other moms think of that? And all of that is, you know, again, this is diet culture showing up where it doesn't belong. Diet culture doesn't really belong anywhere, but it definitely doesn't involve, need to involve itself here. And it's, you know, sort of narrowing what it means to be a good mom to something that's really difficult to achieve. So we've got all of that kind of working together against us right now. So I think that's why it feels so hard. Yeah. And it's so intertwined with wellness, right? So I think so many parents just think, oh, well, I'm just, I want my kid to be like the healthiest child possible. And it's like this fear of your child having any kind of disease or, you know, all this stuff that we sort of fear within ourselves that drives us to be so health and wellness, quote unquote, obsessed, that then trickles down to our kids. Yeah. And, you know, I can speak to that on a really personal level, because one thing I will say is if you have a child born with a congenital defect, you're going to spend some time blaming yourself pretty intensively for that situation. You know, I went down a pretty deep rabbit hole of, you know, trying to like pick apart my pregnancy. Like, what did I do with the different weeks when her heart developed? Why did this happen? What did I do to cause it? And the answer is nothing. The answer is I didn't do anything. I did everything right. And this still happened. And when I say right, I mean, like, I like lived my life like a normal human being. I wasn't like some Gwyneth Paltrow paragon of prenatal healthiness, but I also, you know, wasn't doing like terribly self-destructive things during that time. I just was a person living in the world, making a baby and this happened. And so I think it's terrifying. I think, you know, we love our kids so much. We want the best for them. And it's really terrifying to realize so much of parenthood is just realizing how much is out of your control, you know, and I got that lesson at four weeks in. Um, so and other parents, it's more of a slower learning process, but it's still terrifying every time once you start to realize it. And so we clamp down on eating because it feels like this really concrete way. A, we're told as mothers that feeding our child is our most important job, you know, especially when they're babies. And then it also feels like this way that we can just continue to like control and love them like over and over as they grow and like whatever else is falling apart, we can control the food. But the fact is, like, you really can't. Two kids can grow up and go out in the world and be surrounded by the McDonald's and the cheese doodles and whatever else makes you anxious. And they need to learn how to navigate that. We need to give them the tools to feel empowered and autonomous in their bodies and also listen to their hunger and fullness and know that they can navigate food with confidence versus making food into this, like, scary, intensive, competitive sport. And so that's, you know, I think it's hard to realize 
how little control we have. I think that's something we're all grappling with. But I think it's a mistake to decide like, okay, well, you know, I'll control what I control. And that's food, because that's just it's going to backfire in so many ways. Yes. And oh my gosh, like that was my upbringing to a T and it completely backfired. So yeah. I'm a great example of like, definitely does. why never buying your kids <laughs> cereal with sugar is not going to be helpful for them in the long term. You know, I could go on and on. I could tell so many stories, but uh, you know, it, and the same thing, like it wasn't, my mom was just doing like, she was just trying to, like my mom is super overprotective. She still, to this day, she still is. And that was her way of, of, you know, just trying to protect me and keep me safe. And, and, uh, she was like way ahead of the curve. Cause she was really into like the wellness stuff. We used to go to this crunchy health food store and this was in the early eighties. And so this was before any of this stuff was mainstream, but yeah, it's, uh, it's complicated. And I think, um, I, f- I'm hoping that like more parents are sort of waking up to the fact that we want our kids to have a good relationship with food that nutrition is not just like the number one thing to focus on but i'm i would love you to you know for people who maybe aren't familiar with dor uh, alan satter's division of responsibility can you just provide some specifics on that or like the philosophy around that for people to understand yes absolutely so the division of responsibility model basically breaks down to the idea that feeding is always a relationship and both you and your child have roles in that relationship. And as long as everybody attends to their responsibilities and kind of stays in their lane, it creates a relationship that's based on trust and respect and gives your child the space they need to develop into, you know, a confident health, I'm saying healthy eater, I don't mean they only eat vegetables, I mean, like healthy, happy, well adjusted eater. And so The responsibilities break down to parents are in charge of what foods are offered, but that should include always having something on the table that you know your child likes and feels safe eating. And then we're also in charge of when we offer food. So like when the meals and snacks happen versus sort of a free for all grazing thing all day and where, which means like ideally at a table or in some other place where you can kind of like sit down and enjoy the food together versus like, you know, eating in a sort of rushed on the go way. And then that's really it. Once we provide the food and sort of say what time meals and snacks are happening, our job is done. And kids are in charge of how much food they eat at any given meal. And they're also in charge of which of the foods they eat from what you've offered. So if you're having dinner and you have chicken and pasta and, you know, maybe a side of broccoli and your child decides that that night they're only eating the pasta and they're not touching anything else, that's their choice. You don't interfere. You don't push the vegetables or the protein because you, you know, diet culture has told you those are the better foods for them. You just let them trust their own intake. And then over time, you'll see that they'll kind of naturally on their own gravitate to different food groups, gravitate to different foods at different times based on how they're growing. And it all kind of evens out. You don't get hung up. I'm like, do we have these really perfectly balanced plates at every meal? And, you know, what's interesting about division of responsibility is depending on where you come from with it, it'll either sound wildly permissive or crazy restrictive, (laughs) which I think is a sign that it's like, you know, right in the middle where it should be. Um, So if you, you know, kind of are stuck in a trap with your kids where you're like, they only eat mac and cheese, but that's all I make at every meal. And, you know, I kind of just feed them the foods that they like and don't try new foods with them. But that's, you know, that's where we are. Like it might feel really 
strict to suddenly say like, okay, I'm in charge of what's offered and I'm not going to make your safe food for every meal of every day. Um, and that might be really hard. Or if you've been kind of used to them grazing all day to suddenly say like, okay, well, you know, that was snack and now we're going to wait two hours till dinner. That can, that can be an adjustment process that, you know, is a little, it can be tricky. And then on the flip side, if you're more like what you just described with your own mom, you know, the like no sugary cereals and very controlling about what foods are allowed. We restrict sweets, all of that. The idea that you wouldn't interfere and say, no, no, more of the broccoli, please, less of the pasta, or that you, you know, when it is ice cream night and they say they eat one bowl and want a second bowl and you'd say, sure, like that can feel like wildly crazy and alarming to people. So, you know, it's tricky from both sides, but really what you're doing is you're providing the schedule that supports them feeling their hunger at regular intervals. So they come to the table hungry and ready to eat. And then you're letting them figure out how much they need and which foods they need on that particular day, again, out of your framework. So it's a really nice balance, I think, of sort of control and freedom for on both sides. And it takes a ton of the pressure and the fighting out of meals. Like it's just so much more relaxed as a way to feed your kids. Yeah. And so I've been trying to do this from the start and like, obviously there was like an introductory period where it was a little, little bit like, you know, you're, I'm just giving you some avocado, but, and, uh, it's like, I, I, you know, I love the philosophy and stuff and, and, but even for me, like as someone who's done this work on myself to heal my relationship with food for, you know, gosh, almost like a decade now, and my relationship with food is great. Like it is, it is interesting how some of that stuff will like pop back into my head. Like, I'm like, Oh my gosh, he didn't eat very much. Like he didn't eat enough. Like, and then, or, you know, like, I'm like, Oh, he hasn't eaten in protein in like a couple of days. You know, like, it's interesting how, even though I feel like my relationship with food is great. And I'm like, you know, when I help people, it's, it, you know, I see food is just so neutral, but with, my child, it like, it's interesting how those thoughts have been popping up and I have to kind of be like, nope, like just, <laughs> he's going to be fine. You know, really trying yeah. to trust him. It's, it's a challenge. It's I think. Yeah. Well, and you're at a tricky stage too, because 16 months, you know, like that one to two year old age is when, so it's very normal for babies to eat like basically everything. Like there's, they're very receptive to new flavors from about like six months to a year, there's sort of this window where you can often, you'll be like, my baby loves sushi and tikka masala. And like, I have the most robust eater ever. And parents feel really good. And then sometime in the toddler stage, kids kind of shut it down. And this is really, really normal. Kids go through, all kids go through some version of this. It's called toddler neophobia, where they become much more cautious eaters. And it makes sense. They're growing less rapidly than they did as babies. So they, you know, they need energy in a different way. They're also moving much more and they're much more interested in running around and unpacking your kitchen cupboards than they are in like sitting and like, you know, like a baby that can't walk yet is like, yeah, it's entertaining to sit here and have you bring me food. But a kid who can walk is like, I have other plans, you know, I'm a lot less food focused now. And so, and then from an evolution perspective, if you consider, you know, humans wouldn't have survived very long if we like ate everything, like it's good to be discerning and, you know, know which berries are poison and that kind of thing. So all of this makes sense. And also with normal toddler psychology of they're developing their own will and they're starting to learn that they're different from you and they want to assert themselves and so many things come into play, but it definitely can look like suddenly your kid is not eating or, you know, only eating certain foods and parents can get really nervous. And the thing is, you know, you're doing exactly the right thing to kind of just keep reminding yourself this is normal, this is normal. Because the problems I think often come up when parents 
I don't want to say parents overreact. I mean, it's understandable that you're having that reaction. But when parents start to label their kid and say, well, he's suddenly so picky or he suddenly doesn't like that food. And then you're kind of putting them in a box that they don't actually need to be in. You know, if you just say like, oh, he's learning, you know, he's learning to like lots of different things right now. Um, He definitely has his favorites. He's taking a little longer to learn to like that. But don't, you know, but avoid thinking of your child as suddenly difficult or picky or cautious because, they will change. They will, you know, they will grow and develop. And if you don't put them in that box, I'm not saying you, Summer, are putting them in the box. I'm talking generally for all of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> know. You, you give them more freedom to keep changing and evolving and surprising you. But it is tricky when you suddenly see this change in your child that is very normal, but um, but frustrating. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And their table manners aren't great. And, you know, there's a lot of toddlers. <laughs> Oh yeah, you are telling me. Yes, yes. No, we, we yeah, we have the, all these like mats down because it's just. Yeah. Oh, and we, we bought these really ch- cheap IKEA dining room chairs. Smart. Um, very smart. Yeah, my younger <laughs> is um, two, just over two, and so we're kind of so some of the the food throwing and stuff is definitely calming down now. But um, yeah, the lack of interest in meals is, and she was also a baby that you know just loved all different foods, and now she's like three bites and I'm done. I'm going to play. I'm going to play. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, this is where she is right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, for, for me personally, I find that the hard part. Cause sometimes then I'll be like, well, here, take this piece of toast with you, which I know is like, I, yeah. shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing that. Like, and I'm like, I know I shouldn't be doing that. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't want to drop him off at his caregivers if he's hungry. Like, you know, so it's, it's tough though. I mean, I think you have to give yourself grace for some of that. And also know that like, the great, you know, so on the one hand, you want to avoid things becoming so entrenched that it's like they expect it always to be this way, you know, because toddlers can be pretty inflexible and they love routine and things become normal. But on the other hand, they're changing pretty rapidly. And so maybe there's a week where you need to like send the toast with them in the car or whatever. And then you could try not doing it. And he might be, you notice he eats a bigger breakfast one day and you don't do it and it's fine. Like they do, a lot of times the phases do kind of sh- shake out on their own. Um if you just give yourself, you know, like we had trouble with the toddler, you know, she's just, she's hungry a lot earlier than the rest of us. Like my older daughter and my husband and I would happily eat dinner at like six. Um, and the toddler would like to eat at about 4 PM. And so we're trying to split the difference of like five, five thirty dinner. Um, but she is like often, you know, begging for snacks just before dinner. And I don't want to give snacks right before dinner, right? Cause I'm in charge of when, and it's not dinner time yet. And I'm trying to keep to a schedule and you already had an afternoon snack, but I also have to kind of meet her where she is with, Oh, right. Your tummy's smaller than the rest of ours. You're hungry. Now you're going to be in bed at six 30. So, you know, like this makes sense that this is your dinner time. And so we'll sort of compromise. And that's when I'll give her, you know, a banana, something kind of simple that she'll find satisfying, but that won't sort of overfill her right before dinner. But I also manage my expectations. Like, okay, you had a banana. You're probably not going to eat as much dinner because now I'm kind of I'm pre-dinnering you in a way. And that's not a failing of division of responsibility. That's sort of knowing where your kid is and tailoring it to work for your family. So that's what can be sort of fun about it, but also tricky because you sort of hit these little moments of like, wait, how does the... I know the big framework, but how do I like put it into practice in this particular situation? Yeah, there has to be some level of flexibility. And I think yeah. like there's yeah. absolutely nothing worse than a hangry toddler. So, <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes you got to just be like, okay, we're going to have a little snack right now. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, smaller, more frequent meals, definitely, you know, like you, that makes sense with how 
toddlers are growing. So yeah, they may have more snacks in the day, but you can still hold some structure around it versus like, they're just walking around with the snack cup, like endlessly, you know, like there's like a middle ground. So that's where, yeah, it's challenging. But again, it's really rewarding when you see your kid really listening to their body and know that those days when they're not eating that much, like they are, that is what they're doing. You know, it's working. It just maybe doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like. Yeah. What, like in a situation where perhaps somebody is listening to this or they've, they've come across this stuff when their child is older and they're like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I made so many mistakes. Like, do you feel like there's ever a time where it's, you know, what are the, I guess maybe to rephrase it, like, what are some of the challenges as like, as the kids get older? Like, is it, is it too late to start to implement this stuff? Does it need to happen more gradually? Like, what's your advice to someone who maybe has an older child that has been eating in a different way? That's an interesting question. I think it is definitely not too late, but I do think you want to be transparent with your kid, both because it's good to be honest with their kids. And I think it's good for kids to know, like parents, sometimes can own when we've messed up and want to try something different. And so, you know, if I had an older child that was still very cautious eater, you know, very limited in the diet, or I think the flip side of what we see with older kids is parents get anxious by just how hungry and food fixated they might seem, especially if they're fixated on the so-called treat foods that we are, you know, less comfortable with them eating a lot of. That's, I think, a problem that can crop up a little bit later on. And especially if you've been taking a more controlling, like, you know, we limit you to one sweet a day or no sugar on weekdays, or, you know, if you've kind of had those sorts of rules in your house and you're like, God, my kid is just like, she'll eat, she'll never stop eating sugar when she gets access to it. You know, that can be both situations, whether you have a cautious eater or a food fixator, both are really, really helped by switching to division of responsibility. That's what the other thing I love about it is it's not just for solving picky eating. It's really for any kind of kid, any body type, any food type. Like it works, you know, all demographics. And so whatever the issue might be, I think you can say to your kid, you know, I feel like we've gotten in kind of a rut here where, you know, we're fussing a lot about meals or, you know, name what the problem is. I'm sure the child's aware of the problem. And, you know, it's not your fault at all, but I think we want to make some changes to how we've been doing this. And so we're going to try this new system where we're in charge of some things and you are totally in charge of other things. And let me tell you, as a parent of an almost seven-year-old, kids really love to be in charge of things. <laughs> Everybody loves a special job. Everybody loves knowing what they get control over. It's deeply reassuring. And I think if you say to your kid, you know, I am not going to tell you how many, you know, cookies to eat anymore. When it's cookie time, you get to eat as many cookies as you want. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you that you have to eat broccoli before you eat your safe food anymore. Like whatever's on the table, you get to pick which foods you want. That's going to be like so liberating and reassuring to kids. And you will certainly see on both ends of the spectrum, when you first start doing it with an older kid, you are going to see that kid eat a lot of that food that you wish they weren't eating. Like they are going to lean into that. Yes. Because that's just like anyone who's been restricted and now has permission to eat. That's what we do. You know, they have to habituate to it. And so you're going to see them, you know, eating three bowls of cereal or something for breakfast and you're going to feel anxious. And so you need to have a plan in place for how you're not going to freak out about that because that will only undermine everything. But if you can give it some time and let them really like relax into this new trust model, relax, you know, test this like, okay, does she really mean it? Am I really going to get to eat as many cookies as I want? Then over time, they're going to be able to relax and realize like, oh, I have access to this food that I'm so focused on, you know? And I can eat it when I need to. So I don't need to eat. I don't need to fixate on it all the time. And that's like really just frees up a lot of energy for everyone. So 
yeah, I think it can definitely work to transition with older kids. And I just think involving them a little bit more as is age appropriate in sort of making clear what their jobs are is really helpful. So then they know, and you may then get pushback on the pieces you are in charge of, you know, but like something I do with my older daughter is she knows we have kind of a rough I'm not a good meal planner, but she at least knows that like Tuesday is taco night and Monday is pesto pasta night. So those are like her two favorite meals. And then that helps when Wednesday I'm like making something she's not crazy about because, you know, we can look at the schedule and she's like, oh, right. But then Friday, you know, Friday night it's this and she kind of knows what to expect. So that can help with like she knows I'm in charge of what we have for dinner, but she at least like has the information. That's really helpful. That's great. Super good advice there. I do want to ask you one more thing, and that is, you know, how can parents start to introduce foods to kids that they've been perhaps like restricting themselves? So what I mean by that is I'm one of the groups that I'm in, which is like a group for parents feeding their kids intuitively. There's a lot of parents who don't eat intuitively. And one of the mom asked, asked, um, she said something about like how she had done multiple whole thirties and that, you know, she never ate sugar, but she's feeling like she probably should introduce it to her toddler. So they don't have issues with it. But was like, she basically said like, I have no idea how to do that. And I was like, that's a really good question. Like, you know, and especially I guess in a toddler age range here where maybe like you haven't really introduced it because they are, you're still kind of in control of all the meals. Like they're not going to like birthday parties where there's open access to other food. So like, yeah, what's your, you know, what's your advice in a situation like that? That's funny. That's something that, um, so I host a podcast called the comfort food podcast with my best friend, where we talk all about feeding kids stuff. And that's something we actually talked about. And I'm blanking on which episode it was, but we were talking about how my friend, Amy, who does the podcast with me, she's got three kids and with her older daughter, she was still struggling with some of this. And there was this window where I remember she had like there's this very brief window like you said with once they start eating solids before they get exposed to sugar from the outside world when you have this kind of total control and she then really struggled when her daughter went to daycare and started eating the food at daycare and you know this control starts to get chipped away at and I think and whereas I with my older daughter didn't have that window because we were dealing with the feeding tube and, you know, our whole timeline was just very different. But I remember being sort of fascinated. Like, oh, yeah, you're kind of in this little bubble where you pick everything they eat for a little bit, but it does not last. It goes away really quickly. And, you know, I guess the thing is, is to remember that, you know, you want your kid to feel confident navigating these foods. You probably don't want their first exposure to it to be at a party where you're going to be feeling stressed out and maybe they're already overhyped because it's a birthday party or it's a family gathering or something and there's a lot else going on. And so can you pick a food that you actually do enjoy, even if it's something that you've kind of struggled to give yourself permission to eat. But if you love really, you know, who doesn't love warm chocolate chip cookies straight from the oven, you know, can you have an afternoon where you bake those with your child or bake them while they're napping? Because baking with toddlers is sort of annoying. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, whatever, bake the cookies and then sit down together and enjoy them together. It might be really healing for you as well as wonderful for them. Because it might just give you, like, if you can give yourself permission, maybe you can't give yourself permission to eat whatever you want every day of the week. But can you say, like, this afternoon, this day, I'm going to sit down and give myself full permission to enjoy these cookies with my child because I want us to have this experience. It might be, like, 
really eye-opening to just notice. And I'd be curious how that goes for her and like, you know, what she, what she observes about it. And, you know, if you need, I don't want to encourage kind of a diety mentality about it, but, you know, I think it's fine with a small, like a little toddler to just put out a plate of like half a dozen cookies versus the entire tray. If that feels like too overwhelming to you, you know, but like also be open to if they say they want another one, let's have another one. Let's see what that's like, you know, and just be curious about it. I think and see where it goes because yeah, I think I would also say like avoid doing the, like I'm using beet sugar instead of regular sugar or cream, you know, like enjoy, like do the real thing, like go for the real food that you really love versus feeling like you have to make some healthy kid version of it. Um, because it's going to probably be less satisfying and just kind of defeat the point of what you're trying to do there. So yeah, I think that would be where I would start with it. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. That's good. Cause I think, and I think the biggest thing is like as a parent healing your own relationship with food, like to really role model it and ensure your child has a good relationship with food. You really have to heal your own relationship with food and your body and all the biases that you have around that. You do. And I think, you know, like let your kids be that motivation because sometimes it's hard to do that for ourselves and it's hard. You may not be having a great body feeling day. Like you may not feel great in your skin when you do this, but like you want something better for them. So like, you know, you like don't let your negative feelings about your body or your negative feelings about the food dictate how you act in that situation. Like proceed as if you are loving it all. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds sort of yeah. weird, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I just think like, use them, like use this desire to want to give this to them to give it to yourself. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's, it's kind of doing it for a bigger force than yourself, which I think is a huge motivator for people. It's one thing I try to have my clients connect with, you know, cause it's sometimes easier to do stuff for other people than for yourself. Yeah. 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 Well, this was so insightful and I'm so glad we got to cover so many things. Where can people find more of you? Sure. So my website is virginiasoulsmith.com, all one word. You'll find links there for the book. I mean, it's everywhere you get books, but I've got a nice little list there. The podcast is Comfort Food Podcast. Um, there's links on the website or again, anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm on social media. Instagram and Twitter is at the underscore soulsmith which is awkward to say because I did it before I started doing podcasts. Um, so it's a better written handle. Anyway, and what else? Um, I, then my column is in New York Times Parenting once a month. Links to that are on the website. I think that is all of me. Yeah, and they're always such great articles. And I love following you on social media and stuff and really thank good you. podcast too. So thank you so much. Yeah, so everyone should check it out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Oh, absolutely. This was so much fun. Rock on. There was such good stuff in that episode and we covered so many different topics, which was really, really awesome. As a parent, I found it extremely helpful, especially now that my toddler is getting into that picky slash selective stage around food. And I feel pretty confident that I'm on the right path and we're going to be okay because I trust, I trust the process. And I hope you can either trust that with your own kids or within yourself. And you can find the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 165. I will talk to you next time. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, 
Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.